Get to the church blind! Get to the church blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. Hey, church planner, this is Pete Mitchell. And this is Peyton Jones. Coming to you for hardcore church planning. And we've got a, uh, a great guest today. And I actually have a, a funny story about our guest. I've been saving it up. But uh, I'm going to let you introduce our guest. And, uh, and then I'll tell my, my quick, brief story about our guest. Yeah, our guest today is Ephraim Smith, and I know where you're going with this because he's Actually, an all-around... You don't. you don't. You don't know where I'm <laughs> going right. with this one. All right. Because we met him actually at our famed dinner with Rick Warren that we did a broadcast about. And we, we came around going, that guy was the coolest guy in the room, man. We laughed. We talked with him. And his name is Ephraim Smith. He is the president of World Impact and the author of three books, including The Post-Black and Post-White Church, Jump into a life of further and higher, and the hip hop church, which all are just dynamite titles. So, Ephraim, welcome on, man. I'm excited and honored to be with you. Hey, Ephraim, I got a, a quick story for you, and this is just so you can feel good about yourself. My, um, my, <laughs> my, my wife has got these friends from high school that uh, we meet up like once a year. We've all got kids kind of in the same range, and and we have this once a year uh, birthday bash for one of the kids. I don't even know which one it is because, you know, they all kind of blend together at this point. And uh, one of the gal's sister works for you at World Impact. And she worked there before you were there. And we were talking one time and she's like, oh, wow, you met Ephraim? Yeah, he just came in our office the other day, and we were like, wow, we actually get to meet Ephraim. So I wanted you to know that your employees are like, wow, we got to meet Ephraim. Of course, that was right when you were getting started at next year's uh, get-together. We'll find out if they still like you. But, you know, last year they thought that was the coolest thing there was. So I just wanted to let you know that. Yeah, I'm trying to stretch the honeymoon out as far as I possibly can. <laughs> nice. Right on, man. Well, tell us a little the, bit. The key, the key to, I was going to say, the key to being liked as a president is, you know, don't don't hang out every day. Just kind of, you got to kind of be a feature attraction when you show up and then just smile and tell everybody they're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> Wink and point. Doing great. <laughs> right, right. I dig it, man. Hey, Ephraim, tell us a little bit about the uh, Ministry of World Impact, because it's, it's definitely what you guys do is definitely close to Pete and I's heart. Yeah, World Impact was founded uh, 43 years ago uh, during uh, the, the riots in, in Watts. And, uh, and the founder, Keith Phillips, uh, you know, in his 20s, uh, came into uh, the inner city. He didn't grow up in the inner city himself. But, but had a heart, especially for kids. And uh, he was this white guy who felt a missional call to the inner city in the 1960s. And, um, and out, of, out of that relational call, uh, he began to call others to uh, come into the city to serve incarnationally as, as um, urban missionaries. 
uh, doing evangelism, equipping, and also the empowerment of the urban poor, uh, that they might uh, become ministry leaders, they might become agents of transformation in their own communities. And so from that missional, incarnational uh, call to the inner city, uh, World Impact Today has four focus areas, planting healthy urban churches, resourcing indigenous urban leaders, demonstrating compassion and justice, and developing missional partnerships towards those ends. And uh, so I am uh, very honored and excited that uh, a little over a year ago, I was extended the call by the National Board to serve as the, uh, as the next president and, uh, and CEO of World Impact. And so I'm coming not, not just with a passion for urban ministry, but I'm a product of urban ministry. I mean, I, I think um, I'm, I'm really one of those boys that those early uh, World Impact missionaries came into the city to minister to. And though I'm not a product no, I'm not a product of World Impact specifically. Growing up in inner city Minneapolis, Minnesota, I'm the product of the local church and urban missionaries who moved into my community and shared Christ with me. You know what, Ephraim, that actually is a great segue into the one question we always like to ask our guests, which is, how did you come to faith? Can you give us that story, and then we'll go into more about uh, your experiences and lessons you've learned on church planting and things of that nature. Yeah, you know, I, I came to faith uh, through uh, two things. One is my my family was a part of the planting of an African American urban church called Redeemer Missionary Baptist Church, and um, there was a Methodist church in my neighborhood that uh, one of the ways they did urban ministry was by having folks come on staff who raised their own support, urban missionaries, and did outreach into my neighborhood. So the combination of an African-American church that my mother and my grandmother was a part of, of founding and um, these urban missionaries who moved into my community through a partnership with the Methodist Church, they're, they're ministering to me um, uh, praying for me, mentoring me, is how I came to be a Christian in high school, and um, and, and and really from there uh, had a sense of call into ministry uh, towards the end of my college years. That's awesome, man. And you know, you you yourself um, kind of then got raised up. Tell us a little bit about your call to ministry and how you got involved in church planning. Yeah, well, you know, on, on one hand, uh, it, again, I, I can't say enough about how the African-American church uh, played such a role in shaping me. You know, my wife's grandfather was a pastor of, of a small inner city church, and right after uh, I graduated from college, I went to him saying, you know, I wonder if I'm called to ministry. And he looked at me and he said, well, we'll find out, and he walked away. And so a few weeks later, he says to the church, after he's done preaching, he says, you know, Brother Ephraim came up to me a few weeks ago and says he thinks he might be called to ministry. Well, we're going to find out. He's going to preach his first sermon three weeks from today. And we're going to decide as a church through prayer if he's called to ministry or not. And I was like, hey, I just wanted to meet and talk. I wouldn't want all that. 
And so I, I kind of I came into ministry in, a, in, a, in a, I would call the old school uh, way, you know, uh, through through the African American church. Also, though, uh, that that Methodist church that I talked about in my community, Park Avenue United Methodist, um, there was a a youth pastor there named Art Erickson, and he really took me under his wing. He was an old young life guy, and so he was kind of a maverick. Uh, he wasn't just your typical church youth pastor. He he was very entrepreneurial in his approach to ministry, holistic in, in, in his approach. And he took me under his wing and, and really mentored me. And and so it was through those experiences that I, I sent to call. So I served as a youth pastor uh, for about 12 years. And then in 2002, through the Evangelical Covenant Church denomination, I sensed a call to church planting, and uh, that's when we planted Sanctuary Covenant Church. That's awesome, man. So how many people did you start off with? You know, with Sanctuary, we started off with 22 people, and we were, uh, but when I left in uh, 2010, uh, we were around 1,000. Wow, that's amazing. So you saw that whole kind of uh, early kind of, core team development, planting all the way through to basically becoming a pretty pretty good-sized church. That's, uh, what were some of the growth pains along the way? Did you find like uh, there were stages where, you know, you thought, man, I have to completely shift how I'm doing this stuff? Well, yeah, you know, one, I, I was very fortunate that, you know, I, I planted within the framework the, the the deep commitment to church planting of the evangelical covenant church denomination. And then I was also fortunate uh, to have a couple of churches in Church of the Open Door in Maple Grove, Minnesota, pastored by Dave Johnson and Woodland Hills uh, in, in St. Paul area, pastored by Greg Boyd. They were very uh, supportive, financially sending people, allowing me to preach, uh, mentoring me. So a guy named um, Dave Olson in the Evangelical Covenant Church and a guy named Don Davenport along with those uh, those two churches that work in the denomination. I mean, every church planter, if they had the kind of support and mentoring and coaching that I had, I mean, you'd really have to work hard to mess it up. But at the same time, uh, yeah, to see a church go from 22 people in the basement of a house uh, to 1,000 people, uh, in an inner-city setting, multiracial. Uh, well, that was just a phenomenal journey and experience for me. And, and yes, we, we had these, these tipping points where when we, got to, when we came to 200 people, we had to shift and change some things. And then when we were uh, 500, we, we had to, to change some things in terms of infrastructure and ministry dynamics and, and, and how were we going to uh, be missional in the surrounding community. And then, of course, when we got to 1,000 and we added multiple services and um, we added on uh, a community development corporation where we were doing uh, adopting schools with tutoring programs and uh, addressing health disparities and trying to address issues like urban violence and, and those kind of things, um, definitely we had to um, reinvent ourselves a number of times uh, during the, the eight and a half years. And, you know, Sanctuary Covenant Church is still going today. 
uh, under uh, their pastor, uh, uh, now Dennis Edwards, and, and I'm, I'm sure they've continued to have to, you know, uh, make adjustments along the way to be a self-sustained urban church. You know, Ephraim, this actually brings up a, a great question that I've got. Can you help us kind of really define and determine and, and understand what the difference between uh, an urban church is and the suburban church? Yeah. Well, I think there are, are, are three dynamics that are unique to an urban church. Urban in its totality doesn't mean poverty and under-resourced, but within the context of urban, there are many under-resourced uh, pockets, uh, places where there's, where there's deep uh, poverty uh, and under-resourcing that, that a church would have to address. The second thing is there's a, there's, a, there's a density. I mean, you know, urban centers especially are heavily populated. And so that, that heavy population is connected to multiculturalism. And so the urban church, uh, in a way, it's not that the suburban church doesn't deal with diversity, but you cannot avoid multi-ethnic, multi-class, multicultural diversity if, when you're in the urban context. Uh, I think the, the other thing that uh, you have to deal with, uh, with, with urban ministry is, is just, uh, the, the, just the fast-paced nature uh, of life. Uh, on, on, on one day or in one season, you know, you can see an urban community be uh, very poor and under-resourced, and then gentrification happens, or vice versa. You can see a community very resourced, and then the next season, businesses leave, and, and houses are boarded up. I mean, the way in which the economic crisis affected inner cities was way different than the way the economic crisis affected the suburbs. Um, suburban churches, you know, since the mid-1990s, for the most part, church planting in the suburbs has been about planting in middle to upper middle class, already resourced communities. And you're basically constructing ministry programs for the resourced, for the privileged, where in urban ministry, uh, you've got to decide, if you're going to be self-sustaining, how are you going to take on urban violence? How are you going to take on issues of housing and education? Uh, how are you going to work on the stabilization of broken families? Uh, th there are just so many more holistic ministry dynamics that take place when you're planting an urban church. Yeah. Absolutely. And you, you raise a really interesting point that the gospel has tended, and something we say on the podcast a lot, that the gospels tended to follow middle class tracks. And planners don't often think, you know, we, we always say that people go where the where the money is and not where the need is. And the need often is uh, to go into an urban context and plant. And you mentioned the word gentrification, and um, that's something that missionaries are becoming more and more sensitive to is or getting familiar with, you know, the dynamics of what happens in an urban context. Can you just for the for the purpose of our listeners kind of define that and explain that term a little bit so they understand that when you go into an urban context, you're not you don't fall into the gentrification. 
Well, I mean, gentrification, one of the ways you can look at it as it's urban redevelopment. But it's urban development or urban redevelopment that is done in a way that it is trying to attract the, the already resourced back into the city. And it doesn't always, in, in connection with its development strategy, take into account the need to develop the people that are already living in those communities. So when you develop community without developing people, which happens many times in gentrification, the poor, the marginalized, become displaced. And so what happens is, you know, newly out of college, into the marketplace, uh, many women who uh, can happen to be Christian as well move into the city not knowing that as they move in, um, they, they don't always wrestle with the question, well, what, what happened to the poor people that lived here before me? Or what happened to the poor people and the marginalized people that live here right now? What's going on with them? And so many times those poor can be displaced to the suburbs. And when that happens, that's creating a whole new mission field, even for the suburban church. Uh, Ephraim, let me ask you about uh, your book, The Hip Hop Church. Um, kind of expand on that a little bit and, and help us understand it in the context of, uh, of reaching, um, or, or if that was even the point, I didn't read the Hip Hop Church uh, uh, book, but um, the title kind of grabs your attention, especially us who work in, uh, in inner city Long Beach. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, well, first of all, brother, it's never too late to read the book, so you're, you're not late well, to the party. <laughs> to be frank about it, I found out about it today, so I will, but that's usually the no, That's how Peyton plays on me. He waits until the day of the interview and says, oh, by the way, this is who we're interviewing. Did you read these books? I'm like, okay, great, thanks. Yeah, it's no problem. It's just, it's just it's God's season for you to read it now, so it's all good. I love it. <laughs> but, but what I, you know, the Hip Hop Church book was written for two reasons. One... Uh, when, we, when we wrote that book, I wrote it with another pastor uh, named Phil Jackson. And that, it's funny that Phil, his name is Phil Jackson, and he's a pastor in Chicago. So that's kind of funny. Nice. But Phil, Phil and I uh, wrote the book because, well, two reasons. One was, at the time, a lot of books were being written about postmodernism, and it was the beginning of books being written about being missional. But we felt like the missional conversation and the postmodern conversation was primarily, if I can just be honest, a white uh, suburban conversation. And we felt like there, there, was, there was something going on in the inner city. There was, there was a dynamic within urban culture that was also a way to look at postmodernism, uh, to look at being missional. One, you know, I feel that the civil rights movement uh, what was a very strong church-based dynamic missional movement, but it doesn't get credit for being such. Two, the hip-hop culture that arose in the early 1970s was a strong uh, sign of postmodernism in and of itself. And so we felt like we needed to write the book from that standpoint, but we also felt that for the first time in the urban church and with the black church, there was a generation gap, and there were a lot of folks that were, that were black not growing up in the black church like Phil and I did, but they were more in their spirituality 
and in their value systems being shaped for good or bad by hip-hop culture and commercial rap music. And so we felt it was important for the church to understand hip-hop culture so that it could be missional and advance the kingdom of God within it. That's awesome, man, because even, even in Europe, we found that uh, there was a hip-hop uh, culture that had emerged with church people. I mean, I, I, you know, I work with an organization called New Breed, and the co-founder of that was an MC, uh, and you know, he did mostly like uh, uh, drum and bass and a little bit of house party, but mostly drum and bass. And, you know, and another one, my first worship leader was uh, a DJ who would go around the continent and he would play worship for us until he moved on. But uh, it was the first time I had ever heard worship from a mixing desk. And I remember thinking, why have we not experienced this in America? Like I was a missionary overseas and I had to find it in Europe. Um, it, it just seems like what you're saying, there is a very strong divide between uh, white church and black church. And so looking at your next book, the post-black and post-white church, I mean, it sounds like that's something that you're addressing there. Yeah. I mean, in that book, I'm, I'm trying to make the argument that when you look at um, the current demographics, ethnically, racially, and by class in, in many metropolitan areas, and when we look at the, the forecast uh, of what our nation in the United States is going to look like you know, by 2020, by 2042, by 2050, um, the, the church more and more is going to have to look like the kingdom of God. This vision we see in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, of a multitude that no one can count from every tribe and language. The, the, the church is going to have to more and more be a sneak preview of, of the kingdom of God or the church is going to lose its evangelistic missional credibility in an ever-increasing multicultural, multiracial reality. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So, so as as we're looking at this, um, what what are the the major um, helps right now? Because I'll just give you like we, you know, obviously church planners are going to be listening to this. And they're, they're thinking to themselves, man, you know, like if I'm in a community and I'm, I'm a white person and I'm just reaching white person or conversely, you know, I'm an African-American, I'm only reaching African-Americans. Um, how, how does somebody go about, and th this is a question I wrestled with. I'm not going to give my story. I'd rather hear your answer. But um, this was a point I came to as a church planner in inner city Long Beach. We were a, an Orange County church plant going into LA and I can remember one day God kind of woke me up and said, Hey, you got to think, stop thinking like a white boy. And you know, I, how does someone kind of tap into what world impact is, is trying to do? Because obviously you guys have a goal. You have this goal to develop leadership from within the inner city and the urban context. How does a church planner make sure that he's hardwired that into his church plant from day one? Yeah, well, I think the first thing that a church planter needs to do is be, be authentic to the mission field in which you're planting. Mm. Sometimes church planters have a vision for a church in their head and in their heart, 
that's based on a church that they've seen, but it's not based on the mission field where they're going to plant. So I, I talk to church planters sometimes, and they go, man, I want to plant a church like, like David Anderson planted in Maryland, or I want to plant a church uh, like, uh, like uh, Steve Furtick planted uh, in, in Carolina. And, and, and so they start dreaming of a church they want to plant based on somebody who's already planted instead of being authentic to the church plant. I mean, I'm sorry, instead of being authentic to the mission field where they're going to plant. You can't put, you know, Andy Stanley's church in Watts. You know, you, you can't put T.D. Jake's church in Detroit. You can't put, you know, uh, you know, a, a church of 500 that you went and visited that you really, really love, but yet you're going to plant it in Orange County. And, and, and you saw it, and you saw it while you were traveling to South Africa. And so that's why church planters need to first and foremost be missionaries and think missionally. And, and, and it's nothing against church growth or, or, or self-sustained models or natural church development models of, of, of church planting. Nothing against that. But start with the mission field and start with the mindset of a missionary. And then from there, you have to ask yourself, if, I'm, if, if we're going to be about evangelism, discipleship, and witness in this community, uh, what kind of church plant do we have to be? And you're also going to have to think a little bit from a futuristic standpoint. What do I think this community is going to look like 10 years from now? Mm. And what type of church needs to be planted here? And, 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 if you, and if you're willing to think like a missionary, to think missionally in that way, uh, then you have to start saying what, what kinds of, of further leadership development, coaching, Christian formation do I need as a church planter to shepherd a people in this community? That's awesome. Very, very, very helpful. Very helpful insight. So I know we're we're really out of time with you right now, but um, we, I mean, Ephraim, we could talk to you forever, man, because uh, this is all really good stuff. And church planners right now are starting to wrestle through these things um, theologically. They're understanding that uh, God is gathering people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and that uh, that that's God's goal, you know. But uh, very few of them have been taught to think this way. And so that's why, particularly, the, the books you've written and uh, World Impact um, are extremely helpful in today's uh, climate, where, as you rightly said, that it has been dominated. The conversation has been dominated by uh, a white context. And um, so any, any kind of parting thoughts about how people can get, besides reading your book, besides typing into World Impact, are there any kind of tips or pointers that you give to people who are saying, look, I realize I've had tunnel vision. I, I need to get out of it. For, for example, like um, last Sunday, we're in inner city Long Beach. I couldn't be there, and I, I usually try to be, uh, you know, is uh, is multicultural because you can be multi-ethnic and still not be multicultural as a as a church plant. Uh, 
Um, you can have that racial mix, but it's still a, a very much runs like a white church. Um, and, and so I texted the guy who'd be there and I said, hey, it's Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, holiday on Monday. Um, you need to pray and thank God for that man in the pulpit, you know, boom, boom, boom. And he texted me later and said, man, that thank you for that. He said it, it, it was so helpful to our church because we're, we're 50% African-American on a, on a Sunday. And um, what tips and pointers would you give to people uh, and planners who are saying, hey, I want to be authentic in this. Like I want to, but you know, I don't want to be weird about it. And like always guys who try to like bend over backwards to be multi-ethnic and it, it comes out weird and forced. But for someone who's just really saying before the Lord, I really want to go this direction. I know it's God's heart, but I don't know where to start. What do you tell them? You know, I, I know this sounds like a cliche, but start by rereading the Gospels and the Book of Acts again, but but ask the Lord to help you reimagine this story the, the more authentically. But what I, what I mean by that is some of the reason we we plant churches dominantly the way we do in the United States of America is because we've reimagined Jesus, we've reimagined the church, we've reimagined the, the major characters of the Bible as Western. Mm-hmm. We've, we've, you know, it's, it's what Tony Campolo said years ago. God created us in his own image, and we decided to repay the favor and create him in our image. Mm-hmm. When, when we are able to understand that that. Christ was the Son of God. Christ is the Son of God. But the human package in which Jesus came, he came as, you know, as a Jewish, multi-ethnic, you know, son of a carpenter, born in a community that said, what good could come out of that? It would be as if Jesus was born in Westside, Chicago, or inner-city Detroit, or Watts, or Ferguson. And people would say, what good can come out of Ferguson? And people would say, well, man, somebody named Jesus was born there. And so when we can understand that the first churches, as we know it in Scripture, in the book of Acts, were planted by ethnic, oppressed, minority, multi-ethnic, working-class Jewish people under the Roman Empire, that in affliction and in persecution, they laid the groundwork so that we could stand on their shoulders and plant churches today. When we can think with that mindset, with that understanding of Scripture in Jesus, I think, it, I think that's the beginning of what's going to fuel us to be the church planters God needs us to be in these times. Wow, that's that's important, man. Really, really important. Well, we've, you know, thanks for coming on, Ephraim. It's it's definitely been awesome having you on here. Can't thank you enough for coming on, and I'm sure we'll want to have you again. And if you want to follow uh, Ephraim and check out some of the stuff uh, that he's involved in, definitely check out World Impact Online. Uh, it's worldimpact.org. You can also check out EphraimSmith.com. And again, his latest book is The Post-Black and the Post-White Church. You can also check out The Hip-Hop Church uh, and also jump into a life of further and higher. Ephraim, thanks for coming on, man. 
Oh, thanks for having me, brothers. I really appreciate it. And, you know, for those of you that uh, have joined us today, we always like to remind you on our way out that uh, if you want to reach the ones that no one's reaching, oh, wait, wrong show, Pete. What are we going to say? <laughs> Remember, <laughs> it's a little bit of an inside joke. <laughs> if you've been called to plant a church, go hardcore, go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by The Church Planner Podcast and The Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.